Section 4 of The Symphony Since Beethoven by Felix Weingartner. Translated by Maud Barrows Dutton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The destiny of this artist was prefigured in Schumann's prophecy. He was to be held up as a counterweight by the enemies of the bold opera reformer. He was to be the advocate of so-called absolute music in opposition to poetical music, program music, and the music of the future. In truth, Brahms owed, I do not say his significance, but a great deal of his reputation, which came to him very early, in comparison with other composers, to the unceasing efforts of a band of antagonists, to the Bayreuth master who lost no opportunity of playing Brahms off against Wagner. There was no sense in this sort of rivalry, for in the first place, in spite of Wagner's detailed treatise on the subject, the difference between absolute music, which is ascribed to the symphony writer in opposition to the composer of dramas, and other music, is not of such weighty importance as it is generally believed today to be. Music that one can call absolute in a certain sense, that is, music which is fabricated without any instigation, formal conglomerations of notes and trifling with phrases, flows often from the pen of a Philistine to art, but is not worthy of consideration on account of its tediousness, and it is therefore a matter of indifference whether a work in question coquettes with the new classical school, the modern, or both. All other kinds of music, even without song or program, betray the spiritual influence of the composer. In this sense, none of our great masters were absolute musicians, Beethoven least of all. Then there is something else that is much too often overlooked by those who use the power of position, or of influence, or of the pen, in order to be able, through the degradation, slander, or belittlement of one figure, to raise another one better suited for their purposes, upon the shoulders of the party runners. Yes, is too often overlooked by those out of blind fanaticism, or from other reasons than the real esteem of what is offered them. Are friends or foes of those who wish to mold public recognition according to their opinion, namely, the slow but surely conquering strength of the truth. Footnote I do not direct these remarks and the following against Brahms himself. One had only to know the plain, straightforward artist to be certain that he held himself quite aloof from intrigue and flattery. End of footnote. Manufactured Ungenuine success is like a rushing whirlpool caused by a heavy rain. It rushes suddenly over the spot where usually no water flows, bearing with it all that comes in its way. After a short time, no trace of it is to be seen. True, genius success is like the spring hidden deep in the earth. First it flows for a long while unnoticed, a thin thread of water, then becomes a brook, then a river, then a flood and finds its last outlet in the sea of eternity. One may try to uproot the spring or dam it up, but it always gushes forth anew. Fortunately, it is an established fact today that the zeal of the Brahmsians could not take one tittle from Wagner's greatness, and it underlies all doubt that Brahms also, in spite of all the too zealous attacks directed toward him by certain revenging Wagnerians, will receive his befitting place in the history of music. Time is the severest judge. She devours what belongs to her. Only what stands above her she cannot touch. Just how far Brahms belongs to the immortals, 
we today cannot with any certainty decide unquestionably many who are not his blind worshippers would feel more sympathy for him if it were not for two reasons first the above-mentioned fact of his being played off successfully as a counterweight to wagner's greatness which is no longer done today second the linking of the three b's bach beethoven and brahms this last was a witticism of bulow's which though it originated for a personal motive has found perhaps all the more favor on that account for let me speak it out now again after so many others have done so bulow would never would have made it for brahms propaganda but for his breach with wagner so painful to himself and so lamentable for all future encouragement to art in this instance a great and in the depth of his soul a nobleman fell into the error so often committed by small and malicious natures of making sport of one artist's fame in order to stifle the fame of another if one reads bulow's letters and compares them with what he said and effected in the latter years of his life it is impossible not to lament that such a character and spirit as his stood off from wagner's work and hence from the new development of music in general just at the time when he was especially needed there if in the case of other great artists the struggle with which they were forced to pierce their way through the misunderstanding and stupidity of their contemporaries causes a holy light to enshroud their figures one will remember unwillingly in the case of brahms be it granted that he took no active part in this game that he was on the one side supported by a party and on the other by a famous conductor whose slightest whims brought about a thousand adherents and that both of these endeavored to raise him up in opposition to an artist far greater than he in the following i will try to picture the impression which his compositions alone have made upon me footnote i expressly wish to state that i am no longer fully agreed with the following criticism of brahms the weaker works which could be affected by it are by far in the minority i look up to most of the others in love and admiration if i now in spite of this fact leave the following remarks for the present unchanged so i consider it only honorable openly and frankly to confess my error f w translator's note this note does not appear in either the german edition of eighteen ninety eight or nineteen o one it was sent to me by the author with the request that it be inserted into my translation m b d End footnote when brahms presented his first symphony there went forth the cry from the camp of his friends this is the tenth symphony of course beethoven's tenth was meant by that allowing for all exaggeration there still remains for me in brahms c minor symphony a masterly worked-out piece of music of inflexible austere character which corresponds much more with my idea of a symphony than with schumann's and also is much more skillfully orchestrated i esteem chiefly the adagio and above all the beautiful slow introduction to the last movement the horn that after the gloomy minor sounds through the tremolo of the strings in c major brings out a very intense effect just like the sun gleaming through the rising morning mist brahms drew back from the often vague romanticism of schumann and sought to approach the energetic and plastic mode of utterance of the old masters above all of beethoven he succeeds in attaining a certain resemblance in the first and last movements of his c major symphony a resemblance similar at any rate to that which a concave mirror gives of our face 
The second symphony in D major I place high above the first. In none of his other works does Brahms' spring of invention flow so freshly and spontaneously as in this one. Never before or afterwards did he handle the orchestra so sonorously. The first movement is from its beginning to its end a masterpiece. The second, a slower movement, can be satisfactorily comprehended only after frequent hearing. It is difficult for it to disclose itself to the musical mind, but it does it thoroughly in the end. If I may be allowed the comparison, I should like to suggest a Dutch landscape at sunset. The eye at first sees nothing but the sky over the wide, wide plain. Heedlessly and almost warily, it lets the glance pass over it. Gradually a feeling arises, quietly from afar, and speaks to us. The intermezzo in the form of a minuet is a graceful trifle, almost too insignificant for the other three movements. The finale gives a powerful close to this work, which I esteem above all four of Schumann's symphonies. In fact, even count among the best symphonies which have been written since Beethoven in the new classical school. As in the case of Schumann, I consider Brahms' last two symphonies inferior to his first ones. In these works, reappears, according to my opinion, a subtle element, arising more from reflection than from real artistic feeling, which is peculiar to Brahms, and from which he could never quite free himself. I would like to speak more in detail of this. I will remark right here that I prize certain other works of Brahms in the same degree as the Second Symphony, as, for instance, the German Requiem, several songs, the Song of Destiny, and portions of his chamber music, but I must add that these works are free, at least more than the others, from that pondering element which clings to Brahms' creations, and which soon became a mannerism with him. By this special mannerism of Brahms, I understand certain means which occur again and again in the construction of his compositions. A favorite device with Brahms is syncopation, that is, displacing the bass against the rhythm of the upper parts, or vice versa, so that the one hobbles, as it were, after the other. This syncopation is a peculiar thing. Think of a simple melody consisting of crotchets with a harmonic accompaniment, and then let the bass notes not come exactly with the corresponding notes of the melody, but always a quaver behind. Then the whole will assume a very strange and learned aspect without gaining an intrinsic value. It is just as if someone were to make a most solemn face to say the most simple thing in the world. Furthermore, Brahms loved to combine a rhythm of two beats with one or three beats, thus producing a form which, if used on a long stretch or often, causes a feeling of disagreeable vacillation. Another of his mannerisms is to let the upper voice, or oftener the middle parts or the bass, be accompanied by thirds, or still oftener by sixths and then again to mix up the parts with artificial syncopation. Entire sections of his works are built up in this way. There are certain tone combinations, and indeed actual themes, made from the fifth of the common chord together with a third above, always avoiding the keynote, which we come across so frequently that a clever caussier recently pointed out the phrase... as the Brahms leitmotif. If you look for these mannerisms in Brahms' various kinds of compositions, you will find my statements confirmed. 
even though many of you will not agree with my deductions. Indeed, I believe that the complicated character of the harmony, rhythm, and melody, which, by the way, is called by his partisans depth of meaning, result from these mannerisms, and which destroys the clearness of the musical impression, is the reason why so many of Brahms' works leaves the impression of being artificial and unnatural, and fail to please, in spite of all the masterly technical construction. Nor can it be denied that this very complicated character of the works produces a certain monotony, which is in marked contrast to mere simplicity. At all times, and from every point of view, simplicity will have a happy animated effect. It will ever appear new and young. We admire it even today in Haydn and Mozart after a century has elapsed. But monotony, particularly if it comes from excessive complication, will first attract our thought and investigation, but then tire us, and at last produces that dangerous and art-killing poison, feared by all as greatly as death, the poison of boredom. Seldom are Brahms' compositions really simple, but when they are, they are always beautiful. For instance, the Feldeinsamkeit, the Sapische Oda, and the first movement of the German Requiem. But if we receive the impression that he was trying to write simply, in which case the endeavor to strike a popular tone becomes conspicuous, then the invention is insignificant and reminds one of the weaker Songs Without Words by Mendelssohn. For example, I refer to the C minor movement of his third symphony. A French critic has written of Brahms, It travail estument bien avec siadis qu'il n'est pas. This assertion is doubtless too severe. But if, after noble thoughts and periods, the composition is distorted by syncopation, by continual combinations of unequal rhythms, and by those curious additions of thirds and sixths, and then here and there comes in that artificial simplicity, one receives the impression that the composer wished to stop the flight of his own genius, and fearing the betrayal of his innermost feelings, preferred to clothe himself in silence and rather let the listener divine what he wanted to say than actually say it. It is a bad sign when a composer can be convicted of a mannerism. Who could do this with the great masters? How similar Haydn's compositions are, and yet how different. What a gulf lies between the marriage of Figaro and the magic flute. Who could speak seriously of a Beethoven or a Wagner mannerism? Let anyone who does not believe this attempt to parody the great masters, that is, to present us, in an exaggerated way, whatever their mannerism is supposed to be. He would either not succeed, or else only very clumsily, as do those who, for example, work Wagner themes into quadrilles or marches, which is blasphemy, but not a parody. But it is very easy to write a parody on Brahms and it has already been done very brilliantly by Moritz Muskowski. The same may be said of actual imitation. When we hear modern chamber music written in Brahms' style, oftentimes, if we did not know the composer's name, we would accept it in good faith for a piece by Brahms himself. While I believe that no one hearing under similar circumstances a piece out of an opera of one of our new German composers would confuse it with one of Wagner's, I have not contented myself, after the custom of many Wagnerians, to stop my ears and sneer in imitation of respective places in Wagner's collected works whenever I am confronted by the artistic personality of Brahms. I have gone over and studied deeply 
the greater part of his works. When I dissected this kind of music, my intellect always grew. I admired the work and the construction, and found therein the same joy that a physician perhaps feels when he lays bare the muscles of a beautifully developed dead body. If I let it work upon me as a whole, I experience, except by the works already mentioned, that sickening faintness that must come over the same physician when he dares to wish to bring to life again the corpse by which he has just dissected. Brahms is always a master of form. His works appear in faultless technical perfection, but warm pulsating life I have discovered only in a few of them. But these are indeed the more valuable, because in them beautiful thoughts are united with perfect form, and one feels at once that it was permitted the author to pour forth in a happy hour a free utterance of his individual nature. What was it that hindered him so often from expressing himself in this way? This seems to me to be the answer. He believed himself to be what Schumann had prophesied and what his later partisans constantly claimed him to be, the Messiah of absolute music, the successor of Beethoven. Incidentally, while speaking of his first symphony, I have already pointed to an exterior resemblance to Beethoven. We see also many a time how he strove, without falling into reminiscence, to imitate the peculiarities of style of the last period of the master's works, those bold, severely harmonic transitions, those manifold rhythmic combinations, which became in the case of Brahms his typical syncopation, and those often apparently scattered melodious steps. But it was never permitted him to attain to Beethoven's foundness, which the artist must possess within his own nature. Brahms could only assume the mask. Thus in his works, in spite of the outward similarity, we find only the abstract idea, while in Beethoven's is revealed the real essence of music. Brahms' music as a whole, if I may be allowed the expression, is scientific music, a playing with tone forms and phrases, but not that most expressive and comprehensible world language which our great masters could and had to speak, that language which arouses us and strikes to our very souls, because we recognize in it our own selves, our own joys and our own sorrows, our own struggles and our own victories. Their music is artistic. Brahms is artificial. It is not akin to Beethoven's, but lies at the opposite pole. It's just what Beethoven's music is not. Its character is, therefore, really more abstract, repelling those who would approach and stimulating the intellect more than the feelings. It is a characteristic experience of mine that those works of Brahms which attract my attention as being his most remarkable productions are by no means considered as the best by strong Brahmsians. They point out, among others, the Triumph Lead, the Fourth Symphony, the Clarinet Quintet, which are, to my mind, bare-toned scaffolding. And just this cool style of composing, oftentimes showing a marked tendency for a feeling no longer free, but reflective and mannered, as well as the fact that Brahms went out of his way to avoid any purely sensuous charm of sound, either in melody or instrumentation, that gave him the reputation of having escaped the erroneous ways of the modern composers. He is probably the last great artist who will deserve this reputation. 
New thoughts about music have come from another side. New inventions have broken paths through for themselves. New composers have taken up the struggle with the guardians of the classic ideals of form. We may say today that these last were in the end the victors. Before we turn our attention to the so-called modern school, I must mention several isolated artists who were certainly influenced by that school, but who did not belong to it, and stand therefore as connecting links between the two schools. End of section 4